Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to our 20th episode. It's mid-April, and there's actually something other than the pandemic to talk about. Well, that's not completely fair, but things are starting to resemble the way they look before everything shut down. March got back to its characteristic madness, and we crowned college basketball champions this year. Baseball's opening day happened on schedule, and it looks promising that they'll make it all the way to October. And finally, President Biden announced a sweeping plan to kickstart the offshore wind industry that culminates in a federal goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore generation by 2030. It's officially spring, and things are looking up. I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, how are you doing this month? Uh, you know, terrific. And I look outside, it's a beautiful spring day here in suburban Philadelphia. There's a renewed optimism in the air as, uh, you know, many of our family members are getting vaccinated and what have you. So it's certainly great to be where we are once we think about where we were last year at this time. Uh, great to be with you and looking forward to the show. Yeah, I agree. I am also looking forward to the show. And as you mentioned, it's sort of a renewal or return is kind of a theme for this month's podcast, because we've got the return of a really interesting and important guest. And uh, I know we got a lot to talk about. So Glenn, would you do the honors of jumping right into it? Absolutely. And we're very, very pleased to welcome back to the GT Power Hour, Chairman Rich Glick from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Chairman Glick came to the commission in November of 2017. Uh, he became chair of the agency on January 21st of this year. I think it was less than 24 hours after uh, President Biden took the oath of office, and he's been firing on all cylinders ever since. Chairman Glick is making people like me do a lot of writing these days, a lot of reading these days, and setting a pretty aggressive agenda to address many issues that need to be resolved. Uh, he joined us last June for a fantastic conversation when it was a very different world, and now he's back for uh, his second stint on the GT Power Hour. Chairman Glick, welcome back. Thank you, Glenn. I appreciate you inviting me back. I wonder if this is like Saturday Night Live, and after you uh, get the guest host for a few times, you get a smoking jacket. I wonder if that's true with your podcast <laughs> as well. Well, I think on Saturday Night Live, you need to bet five times, if I remember correctly. So we'll keep track for sure. <laughs> well, Chairman, I was looking back, and the last time we had you on was episode 10, and it is now exactly 10 episodes since then, episode 20. So we will be excited to have you back for episode 30, uh, which means that the, by the time you get your smoking jacket, will be, uh, what, episode 60, uh, which will be a very <laughs> exciting moment. And I'm sure by then we'll have plenty of goodies to hand out to our longtime guests. So just count on that. It gives me something to aspire to. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, First off, as I said, in preparation for this episode, I went back and listened to that prior to your first experience. And let me just say that we on our end have really upped our game since then. But Chairman, honestly, so have you. Um, you've been in the driver's seat now for about two and a half months, just under 90 days. And we've already gotten, I've got a list here and I'll try to run through it real fast. 
a, a new senior level environmental justice position at the commission, a joint evaluation with NERC on grid performance during the mid-continent cold snap in February, as well as an examination of related potential market issues, a change in stance on natural gas, including re-examination of the policy statement on approving new infrastructure, a technical conference on resource adequacy, closing the grid resilience proceeding and opening one focused on climate change, movement forward on an office of public participation, preparing for the grid of the future, work on the market-based rate database, proposed rulemaking on improving transmission line ratings, reduction of relevant electric retail regulatory authorities' ability to prevent demand response aggregators within their jurisdiction for participating in FERC jurisdictional markets, and a review of Order 719's DR opt-out provision altogether. That was a mouthful reinstatement of what you called a common sense understanding of PURPA, sending PJM back to the drawing board on its market seller offer cap, and last but not least, relicensing after more than eight years of legal standoffs, the Conowingo Dam hydroelectric plant. Now, that's not even counting other blockbuster moves you've signaled are on tap. Whew. Here's the question. As you noted on FERC's own podcast, you didn't come here to work on reports that sit on the bookshelf and gather dust. Is this a new day at FERC? Should we expect this level of activity as long as you have the gavel? Well, you know, I, I just get tired listening to the solicitor. It's <laughs> a lot. Um, and I, I recognize that, but it's, it's, you know, a lot of the credit goes to our individual, indif- I can't even say it, but the, the, the staff that doesn't get tired. And we have an amazing group of staff, about 1,500 employees at FERC that are just top-notch in terms of their expertise, their understanding of the issues, but also their dedication and their ability and and willingness to work hard. Uh, We do have a lot on the agenda, and I I recognize that, and we certainly have announced a number of new initiatives since in the short time since I've become chair. Uh, But I think it's, you know, we're we're in the midst of an important uh, transformation going on in in the energy sector, and it's very important to the future of our country, the future of the world, quite frankly. And um, uh, we have a lot to get done. And so, as you mentioned, I didn't, didn't come here just to write reports. I came here to do things, and I know my colleagues did as well, and we're going to work together to try to uh, achieve as much public good as we can. Yeah, that, that's terrific. And as like somebody who follows FERC on an almost day-to-day basis, the, the level of activity has been amazing, impressive, and at times daunting, I won't lie. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing a lot as a community here, but as, as you point out, there's a lot to be done because we are at such a historic time. Um, you know, one of the things on Rory's list that he mentioned was a technical conference on resource adequacy, and I'd like to drill down on that a little bit, if we can. Um, we had the technical conference on May 23rd. It was a, a good day, a long day, where we heard a lot of commentary. Uh, the commissioners were very active and engaged in acting, asking a lot of questions. Um, what did you learn that day, and what were your takeaways from the technical conference on the 23rd? Well, first of all, I think we had a really uh, very diverse set of panelists that were uh, very engaged and I think uh, provided a lot of important things to think about. And uh, I know that my colleagues and I and and our staff very much appreciated their participation. Secondly, I think the highlight of the technical conference was almost all the people that participated recognized that the current MOPR is just not sustainable. Something I've been saying for a while, I know a lot of other people have as well. And uh, from PJM, PJM on down, um, uh, there is, I think, a, a relative consensus that we need to do something else. Now, what that might be, there may not be consensus yet about exactly what we want to do, but I think a lot of important ideas were put on the table. 
uh, we're going to continue to work with PJM, uh, the stakeholders, and others, and and, and try to uh, get something done uh, moving forward that is uh, more sustainable and and, and actually uh, meets the Federal Power Act standard of just and reasonable. That PJM has kicked off that stakeholder process, and they had their first meeting this week, and they've put forth a pretty aggressive timeline in terms of having those discussions and those conversations in an effort to get uh, something before you all in July. Uh, I can't obviously ask you to comment on, you know, or prejudge anything, but just give me a sense on, you know, how you how you feel like PJM setting up the process to address this. And, you know, and are you optimistic given that, I mean, you noted the high level agreement that something must be done on MOPR, but yet the challenge of figuring out exactly what, you know, assess your maybe your optimism on the ability to get something done in the stakeholder process. Well, I know there's a lot of interest and, and we've, we've been in contact with PJM and others and I know a lot of folks are talking and I commend PJM for putting together the process they have. Um, we have to see what results from it. And, uh, but I think that, as I've said on several occasions, I think the best thing to do is for PJM and the stakeholders to come up with a proposal, proposed reforms and send it to the commission for our review. Um, and uh, we'd certainly like to do that. But if, if for whatever reason they, they can't achieve that kind of consensus, I think it's incumbent on the commission to act and do, do, do something for them. We need to take our own initiative under section 206 of the Federal Power Act to pursue changes if, if, if we don't find the current circumstances just and reasonable. And I think again, as I said before, I think there's a lot of consensus that the current approach isn't just and reasonable. So I'm looking forward to, to again to hearing from what, what comes out of the PJM process, but I want to make it clear that if they don't achieve something, we're going to have to impose something on our own under, under a different provision of the Federal Power Act. Chairman, you mentioned your long-held desire to address the MOPR, among other things. This is this is admittedly a, a loaded, a bit of a loaded follow-up, but do you see this activity level at FERC as coming out of a buildup of stuff that hasn't been done that should have been done previously? So I, th I think, I think some of that, some of that is, is accurate. Um, we, we, I think the commission hadn't uh, on, on certain circumstances, certain issues uh, acted uh, on matters or we let matters sit pending for a while and uh, things built up. And uh, I think there was some frustration, not only among the commissioners, but also among stakeholders. So we are actually, um, uh, part of it is cleaning up um, uh, act actions that have been sitting at the commission for a while. But in addition to that, as I mentioned earlier, we're in the middle of a very important transition to a cleaner energy future. And I just think there's just a lot of activity going on. And uh, a lot of people, a lot more people are coming to FERC seeking not only guidance from us, but action. And so um, we're responding to a lot of that as well. As you know, PJM testified before the U.S. Senate and at the technical conference that reliability is job number one and that capacity markets in PJM need to be the primary vehicle for achieving resource adequacy. Do you agree? And if so, what do you see as the essential elements of a good capacity market? And then what doesn't need to be there? So um, first of all, resource adequacy is, I'm going to say something obvious, resource adequacy is essential. And that's certainly the, the, the goal here. Um, and each region has a different approach to resource adequacy. Some use capacity markets, some use other approaches. And so I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, certain to say capacity markets are essential to achieving resource adequacy. On the other hand, some regions uh, have chosen that particular forum to do that. And so our, our goal or our role is to ensure that whatever uh, approach they use, whether it be capacity markets or something else, is a just and reasonable approach and uh, it is an non, non, accident, non-discriminatory manner. I think the problem has been 
uh, I think the capacity market in, for a number of years in PJM and elsewhere in other regions that have mandatory capacity markets in particular has been used as essentially uh, an, an effort to um, you know, address what they call the missing money, you know, the, the revenue the generators think they should be receiving but aren't receiving in the energy markets. And so as energy prices uh, have continued to be low because of the low natural gas prices or obviously the growth of uh, zero marginal cost resources such as wind and solar, um, we've seen a greater focus on the capacity markets because generators aren't making the money they want in the energy markets. And so I've been frustrated because I think people continuously look at the capacity markets more as a piggy bank than as a way to actually achieve resource adequacy. And I think we need to fix that. One of the things we need to do is, is figure out a way to fix the energy and ancillary services markets so that we're actually um, uh, compensating the actual value that either generators or providers of, of ancillary services provide to the market, as opposed to um, uh, increasing our emphasis on the capacity markets and essentially paying uh, generators for sitting there and waiting to be needed, as opposed to actually uh, when they actually do provide value to the market. Yeah, and let me follow up on that one because there's a lot in there that I'd love to unpack. Um, so let, let's maybe fast forward to the year 2030. And we've seen a lot more renewables, a lot more wind and solar come on the system, a lot more batteries come on the system. And, you know, wind and solar are terrific energy resources, right? You know, when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining, they're, they're able to produce, I mean, they have no fuel costs, they're great energy resources. Um, you know, but as we've seen over time, they've been a little bit challenged on the capacity side. And they don't, I mean, Joe Bowering pointed this out in the state of the market report, they don't participate in the capacity market as much. They have more challenging risk profiles and things like that when it comes to capacity resources. Isn't like the grid, here's the part where I'm struggling maybe, it seems to me like the grid of the future is gonna rely heavily on wind and solar for energy, but it's going to need um, you know, whether it's coal, nuclear, natural gas, or, or really, really good batteries, you know, to be there to, to ensure resource adequacy and reliability. Um, and it seems to me that you're going to have to provide a revenue stream for those resources to be there and available. What, what are your thoughts on that? Like, as we look, I mean, I know we're in 2021 right now, but as we look at 2020, 2030 in that grid, how do we, how do we think about that um, to make sure we're keeping resource adequacy in check? Well, this, this process that we initiated is not just, we're not just looking at capacity markets, we're going to be looking at energy and ancillary services markets as well. And, and with, with the goal in mind that you just outlined, which is what is the world going to look like and what is, what's going to be needed uh, to ensure reliability going into the future? And you're exactly right. I, I think we're going to need, as we rely more on intermittent resources, such as wind and solar, we're going to need more flexibility. And uh, there are various ways to uh, incent or, um, again, compensate that flexibility uh, for the value that the flexibility, assets that provide flexibility provide um, the grid. Uh, I don't necessarily uh, believe that capacity markets are the best way to do it. Certainly, there's one way to address that. I do think we need to look at our ancillary services and energy markets as well and figure out a way if those markets need to be fixed as well to address um, uh, the idea that uh, uh, we're not we may not be providing enough incentives now for flexible resources to, to, to stay on the grid. Chairman, I was just going to ask, did I hear you say that, that you think that there might be better alternatives to a capacity market? Could, would you dig into that? Well, again, I, I don't have, I wish I had a, a, a perfect answer for you right now. I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily advocating the abolition of capacity markets. Please don't get me okay. wrong there. Uh, it may be that we need to figure out a way to fix the capacity markets as opposed to eliminate them. All I'm saying is, is it isn't just capacity markets that provide uh, the resources that we're going to need to address intermittency. 
into the future. Um, we can also provide or make changes to our energy and ancillary services markets to encourage those um, uh, investments in those facilities as well. And I'd rather focus on that because I think that's actually more efficient. That doesn't mean you can't have a backup capacity market, uh, but I'd rather not move. All, I'd rather have um, a greater focus on trying to provide, uh, trying to compensate for the value um, that assets provide in the energy and so services markets. So there won't be such a focus on capacity markets going into the future. And maybe just to drill down on that idea a little further, because maybe I'm not, I'm missing something in my simple mind here, but I mean, if we're paying resources that aren't running, how do we provide revenue streams through the energy market for the, I mean, you get the energy market revenues when you run, right? <laughs> or, or is there a way to do it differently? Maybe that I'm not thinking of. So there are, there are a variety of ways to, to address that. Certainly, I think the point is what we need flexibility to address intermittency, especially with growing amounts of wind and solar. And so um, you can certainly use the capacity markets to compensate those particular uh, facilities that provide those services. But there are other ways of doing it. Certainly, we can look at reforms to our energy and ancillary services markets as well and determine are there ways to, to provide more uh, greater compensation when those assets are actually providing value. So for instance, uh, uh, providing a, a, a better compensation for ramping services, for instance, in the ancillary services market. There are various ways of getting at it other than necessarily relying on the capacity market to fill in that void all the time. All right, if we, if we could for a moment, let's just hop back to the MOPR conversation real quickly. And you mentioned that, you know, if PJM and its stakeholders are unable to achieve consensus or get a proposal for you under 205, the commission's prepared to go down, possibly go down a road of, of 206. Um, and obviously, I mean, we've, we've had a 206 filing as it relates to MOPR in the last few years, and it caused a lot of auction delays and other, you know, some, some really challenging dynamics. Uh, any, any, I mean, obviously, 206 is not a preferable road because of that, but could you talk about, do you have any concerns of going down the road and what it could mean for auction delays and things like that? You're exactly right. The commission made a complete mess of this a few years ago when we went down the 206 route. And there were a number of proposals on the table and we decided, and the majority of the commissioners decided that they knew what, what was better for PJM and everybody than everybody else did. We went down a path, as you know, with the number of delayed auctions, uh, we kept on changing, uh, the commission kept on changing its approach and uh, made a complete mess of the situation that we're only now digging ourselves out of, which is why, again, I think the preferable option is, to, um, uh, is for PJM and the stakeholders to work on something that uh, they could send to us that we could review under Section 205 of the Federal Power Act. Having said that, I also I do understand the stakeholder process sometimes gets messy and sometimes gets delayed, and uh, there's not always enough consensus developed for something to be presented to FERC. If that's the case, I do think we have a, an obligation under the law to step in and act under Section 206 of the Federal Power Act to ensure that the markets are just and reasonable and not unduly discriminatory. And from my perspective, we should be doing that, but only uh, only until... Um, we know that uh, the PJM, the PJM stakeholder process won't actually bring something to the commission. Chairman, that sounds a little bit like an ultimatum. Do you have a deadline for when you want to see something? So first of all, um, I, I, I prefer not to say ultimatum. Because <laughs> I, I think I, I, I don't, I don't have, you know, I, I'm one vote out of five. The commissioner, sure. and I'm just giving you my particular view. So I'm not, I can't tell you that that's what the commission is going to do. It's just my view of what the commission should do. Um, secondly, um, I think it's uh, imperative that the, uh, the, the the next auction, which I think is going to occur in May, actually occurs. It's been delayed far too long. And I think it's important to provide some regulatory certainty for all participants in the market um, uh, uh, in terms of moving forward with that particular auction. I, I personally believe we need to figure out an, an alternative or a modification to the current MOPR process 
before the December auction. Um, and I, I certainly would prefer not to delay that December auction. Uh, so I'd like to see some sort of action, whether it come from the commission or come from uh, the stakeholders uh, and then to the commission uh, before that December timeframe. But I don't wanna um, draw a line in the sand and say it has to be by such and such date. So, so for us FERC watchers, there isn't like a hard and fast day that we say if, if PBDM doesn't have something in by now, it's likely FERC's going to be moving to become active uh, on their own, do a 206. I don't think it's constructed to give a hard and fast date because we might have to, we might actually go back on that date. But yeah. um, again, I, I I'm looking at the December auction. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that and saying we need to figure out a way to provide a better approach before then. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about pipelines then, Chairman. Um, during your, and when I say pipelines, I mean natural gas pipelines. During your first visit to the podcast, we discussed what you saw as FERC's role in evaluating them. At the last open meeting, there appeared to be a change in FERC's policy, and I kind of referenced this earlier, as a result of a compromise that was struck between you and Commissioner Chatterjee. Do you agree that there was a change of policy? And if so, what does that mean for pipelines and landowners moving forward? Well, I think there was a change in policy. And first of all, I want to commend uh, Commissioner Chatterjee for uh, working with us. You know, he had come to me a number of months ago and said, you know, I think there's some room here that we could work together on this issue. This issue is um, what, how we address greenhouse gas emissions associated with new pipeline construction and the operation of new pipelines. And so we, we worked together. It, it took a while, but um, uh, he was a, a man of his word. And uh, we were able to reach a compromise, which I think is a significant compromise. And essentially, this has been an issue that, that I think has been raised a number of times at the D.C. Circuit and elsewhere. And that is the FERC has refused to examine uh, the impact of greenhouse gas emissions associated with new pipelines in determining the impact of those emissions on climate change. Now, when we have to cite or certificate new pipeline development, we have to examine under the law the environmental impacts of that new pipeline. And we examined all sorts of environmental impacts, whether it be on wetlands, on NOx and SOx emissions, on uh, to various species and so on. The one impact we don't look at, we refuse to look at, at least the majority has up, up, to, date, up to date, is uh, greenhouse gas emissions and their impact on climate change. And so the courts have told us on a number of occasions we need to do so, but a majority of my colleagues have continued to ignore that. So uh, Commissioner Chatterjee and I, and uh, Commissioner Clements, uh, worked on a compromise uh, mo most recently uh, announced at the last commission meeting in, in uh, March, in which uh, we said from now on, we actually are going to look at those greenhouse gas emissions associated with the pipeline. And to the extent we don't find those emissions significant, we're going to approve the pipeline, assuming there's no other adverse impacts as well, which I think is an important compromise because it does change the commission's position of ignoring climate change and ignoring the impact of greenhouse gas emissions on climate change. Um, so I think what we're actually finally doing is listening to what the D.C. Circuit has told us for the last several years we need to do when we certificate natural gas pipelines. And my question on this one is, do you see this as a durable solution? Do you see this, this as one that could extend for years, or do you see this as a bridge solution or a temporary one? I think it's a durable solution. You know, I think the next step is what happens when you find the emissions significant, and we haven't actually come to that um, uh, point yet. Uh, we may in, in future orders, we'll have to see how, how, how things go. But I've always said, and I think I might have said it on your original podcast, that just because you look at the greenhouse gas emissions associated with a pipeline project doesn't mean you're against the pipeline project. You can support it. First, you can find that it's not significant, which Commissioner Chatterjee, uh, Commissioner Clements and I did 
uh, in the Northern Natural case, um, which we talked about in the, from the March meeting. But also, even if you found the emissions to be significant, there are all sorts of mitigation activities you can take to offset or, or mitigate the, the impact of those emissions. We do that again with all other environmental impacts associated with the pipeline project. We, we require the companies to mitigate those impacts. We can easily do that with regard to greenhouse gas emissions. And again, even if you, you did that and you couldn't for whatever reason figure out a way to mitigate those impacts, you could still say, well, the benefits of the pipeline project that is proposed outweigh projected impacts including the impacts on climate change. And you could approve the project that way too. So there are various avenues of going forward and sometimes you may not approve the project. But the point being is that just because you're looking at greenhouse gas emissions doesn't mean that you uh, automatically have to vote no on a pipeline project. And I think that's what the breakthrough uh, that we achieved recently uh, really stands for. And I think um, uh, it's gonna be durable for a number of years. All right, terrific. And, and you mentioned, you know, this pipeline policy was a result of a compromise that was reached between you, Commissioner Chatterjee, Commissioner Clements. Um, and as we've commented on this show several times, we've always found it remarkable the difference one new commissioner can make at, on any commission and particularly at FERC. And at FERC, you have some very unique dynamics right now. You have two relatively new commissioners uh, and commissioners Christie and Clements. You have two former chairmen of the commission, um, which may be unusual as well, and and yourself. Um, And you're neither a former chairman and you've been there for some time. So how are things going on the 11th floor these days, especially in a virtual world? Well, I think they're going pretty well. You know, it it is a little strange that we're on this virtual situation. We're all working uh, distance distantly from our homes or from wherever. But um, I think it's, uh, it's it's worked out pretty well. And again, I want to uh, commend the commission staff. Uh, we really haven't missed a beat since we, we've been, it's been over a year now since we've been out on, on uh, out on doing work, working virtually and it's worked very well. We've been issuing our orders. We haven't um, uh, really missed any deadlines and uh, we've been able to uh, uh, do it, I think as well as we were doing it before when we were all in the office building. Um, but with regard to the commissioners, you make a good point. I, you know, I've been now at FERC for about three and a half years. And what's interesting to me is that every time one commissioner leaves or one commissioner or one or more commissioners comes, um, there is, uh, there's the change in the atmosphere. There's just the, the, the working dynamics just automatically change. It's just the nature of the way things work when you have a, a multi-member commission. And so we've had a lot of change uh, at FERC since I've been there. Um, obviously, a number of chairmen, uh, commissioners have left. Uh, and uh, and obviously some have arrived. But I think this five-member commission is working very well. First of all, it's always important to have five members if you can. That's, that makes it most, most helpful. Secondly, the two new additions we have, uh, Commissioner Clements and Commissioner Christie are great additions. Commissioner Christie gives a very, provides a very important um, uh, set of uh, skills in the sense that he was a state commissioner for a number of years and he has that background. And uh, uh, I think that's an important uh, viewpoint that we need to consider more as was the impact of our decisions on states. And then uh, Commissioner Clements, I think, has said this the first time she when she came to the commission. I, think, I don't think any commissioner has come to the commission more prepared than she has. Uh, she, she's just stepped right in. She knows the issues well. She's worked at, um, on FERC issues for a number of years, and, and uh, it's a lot of very, very helpful thoughts. So um, I, I'm excited about it. I think we're working pretty well. My goal when I first became chair was to try to restore the process that we that I understand the commission used to have of more deliberation, more attempt at consensus. We don't always reach consensus. Uh, certainly there have been issued orders we've had disagreements on, but for the most part, I think it's worked pretty well. And I think we've been able to work out some of our differences and just discussions we have between commissioners and, and between staff. And uh, I'm excited about going forward. I think we can uh, 
I do some uh, work, some work on some very important issues, and I, do, I think do it with as much consensus as possible. You know, Commissioner Chatterjee came on this podcast and and said that under no uncertain terms that he would serve the end of his term um, up to June 30th. He, of course, can stay beyond that if he chooses so long as a successor has not been confirmed. But you've said several times, and I've never heard uh, a FERC commissioner say differently, that FERC works best when it has the full complement of five commissioners. Any thoughts on a replacement for Commissioner Chatterjee? And if you have 60 seconds with the president, what or who uh, would you say he should be looking for? Well, I haven't had 60 seconds with the president, (laughs) but I would say, first of all, I think it's important that, that, um, uh, as you said, it's important to have the five commissioners, full complement of five commissioners. So it's, I think it's important for uh, the White House and the folks that are considering uh, nominations uh, to make a nomination relatively soon, to announce a nomination and just have that um, the paperwork prepared. So that when Commissioner Chatterjee does leave, uh, the next person can, can, can step in right away, because I think it's important to have the full complement of five um, rather than going back to a four person commission. Um, so, I, I, you know, again, I think it's up to the White House. I won't tell them exactly what, who they should pick, but I would say um, uh, someone with uh, an important background in the issues that we um, uh, we work on on a daily basis would be helpful. Um, but I think uh, I, I won't get into specifics about who that person might be, but I, I'm hopeful that they, they will act uh, relatively soon to uh, be prepared in case Commissioner Chatterjee decides to leave sooner than April thir- uh, June 30th. And if he leaves, um, if he doesn't leave after, you know, before June 30th, I think they should have someone ready to go uh, just right after. All right, Chairman, you know the drill. It's rapid fire time. Let's get started. Have you been able to see your new office yet or is COVID keeping you from checking out the new view? I haven't seen the new office just yet, at least since I became chair. Um, uh, we're actually in the process of moving out of our, our current office space and uh, moving into the, the new space. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's probably going to be another uh, couple of weeks, but I've been in that office before and I look forward to seeing it again soon. I have another rapid fire related to the transition that, <laughs> that you've made over the last couple of months. Um, do you miss writing dissents? Um, it seems like I mean, it used to be a running joke at public meeting. How many dissents Click would have out there? Uh, and you've really like your, your pace of dissents has dropped off dramatically in the last three months. We still have a few dissents and a few con- concurring opinions, but you're right. It is different. It, it's, it's a different role, uh, you know, and that's, it's, it's taken me a little while to get used to it, to be quite, quite frank. Uh, you know, uh, before we would, you know, have draft orders and would react to them. Uh, read the, I'd read the orders and decide whether we want to vote yes or no. We, if not, if we didn't really like the order, we'd certainly make suggestions. If those suggestions were rejected, then certainly we'd write our share of dissents, and we certainly wrote many of them. Um, now it's a little bit different. My role is to figure out a way to get the votes. Uh, to allow these orders to go forward. So I read the orders with, with not only trying to figure out whether I'd like the draft order myself, but also trying to figure out how can we make sure we address the concerns and interests of the various other commissioners. And so I'm spending a lot less time on dissents, and that is a little bit of a different approach, but I, I, I kind of like the new role as well as being able to uh, kind of think about creatively how, how can we can get to a majority of votes and hopefully most of the time get to a, a 5 five zero vote. Yeah, and that's a really important point that I don't think a lot of people appreciate. You, you lose a, little, a certain little flexibility when you move from the commissioner role to the chairman role. Um, that's, that's for sure. And uh, you're right. I mean, you have to you know, forge the consensus to get the, the votes out the door, so to speak, whereas a commissioner, a lot of times you can just say, here's where I am, and then decide whether you feel like moving or not. So uh, yeah, it is a much different role. 
Yeah, when I was a reporter at a smaller newspaper in northern Pennsylvania, there was a three-member uh, county commission there, and the, uh, the minority commissioner used to call it sitting in the catbird seat. He loved being there and lobbing bombs at the majority. Uh, he could just stand back and say no to things or describe why things are not great, and the majority uh, obviously had to move forward on the agenda. So it certainly is a, a change. All right. On the first day of the NCAA men's basketball tournament, you, Chairman, picked Gonzaga, Michigan, Texas Tech, and Illinois to make the final four. Michigan and Illinois for the championship game and Illinois to win it all. You have officially gone one for seven with those picks. Former Chairman Chatterjee came on this podcast prior to the season and predicted that his University of Kentucky might have an historic season, even by their program's legendary standards, and they in fact did. Historically bad, the team hadn't won so few games in a season since 1927, nearly a century. Is there something about being FERC chairman that makes predicting college basketball games extra hard, or was this just a completely unpredictable season? <laughs> It's a great question. I actually enjoyed seeing Kentucky and Duke not make it. I think it's good, <laughs> good for college basketball to have yeah. some new blood. Um, Amen. I have to say, I am embarrassed uh, of my picks. I, I had seen Illinois play a number of times over this uh, season, and I was convinced they were the top uh, most talented team, but obviously they didn't put it together against, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Illinois-Chicago. Um, but uh, 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 nonetheless, uh, Loyola Chicago, actually, but nonetheless, um, it was fun. And we had, we, we, I will give Commissioner Chatterjee some props, though. He, uh, uh, we did have an 11th floor uh, basketball pool, no money involved, just, just, just for pride. And uh, he did pick Baylor to win. He, he, oh, he, did finish, he finished second, though. Uh, wow. Commissioner Clements is one of her advisors, actually. The one he oh, really? Well. oh, really? But, so I, I give him a little credit for figuring that out. I was, I was obviously way off. I lost all my pools. I was in several and uh, didn't sniff the championship in any of them. So, yeah, I, I went into my bracket thinking the Big Ten was strong and the Pac-12 was weak, and, <laughs> and I think everybody price, did. Yeah, paid the price severely for that one. Yeah, I think everybody did. That's amazing. Anyway, all right. So we mentioned a couple of times that you were on our podcast in June and. I, got, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you, Mr. Chairman, because I, uh, I spent two weeks of my summer reading Franz Kafka, and uh, it was not an enjoyable experience, but I read it nonetheless because I said it would. Have you had a chance to read any Franz Kafka since our last podcast? I have not, but I've actually been reading a book called So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports. <laughs> book that just came out. And to me, it's very Kafka-esque. <laughs> there you go. I, I love that i like that still i have to read that what a great plug all right um recently on FERC's podcast you said you closed the grid resilience proceeding in a large part because it was considered by some to be controversial and political but then you opened a new docket on the same issues in relation to extreme weather and climate change isn't that also considered by some to be controversial and political well, it's certainly a controversial issue. There's no doubt about it, or at least an important issue that people don't necessarily agree on. Uh, I wouldn't call it a political issue at all. Um, with regard to the, to the docket that we closed, you will recall that um, when uh, after President Trump took office, uh, Secretary Perry had uh, sent to FERC a notice of proposed rulemaking, as he's allowed to do under the law, uh, which essentially uh, would have, uh, if we had granted it, would have required uh, the um, subsidization of certain base load generation under the guise of resilience. 
And the commission voted it down five nothing. There's just no evidence in the record to move forward. But the docket remained open as a compromise. Everyone agreed that we'd continue to look at resilience. And I think we asked comments on what the definition of how would someone define resilience? And if, if there's a problem, what should we do? And we couldn't even do that. We couldn't even define resilience. The docket sat there three years, no action whatsoever. And um, so I thought it was important to close it. Uh, and, and we actually included a, a, a draft order on the agenda. Uh, it was publicly announced before the Texas situation happened. And of course, the Texas situation happened and people said, well, why are you closing the docket in the aftermath of what happened in Texas? And my point is they, they really weren't related. Again, the docket that we had open at FERC going back to the Secretary Perry's proposal uh, really didn't relate to much. And I, I think it, again, had the, uh, the bad fortune, again, of being associated with the Trump administration proposal and it was considered very political. But having said that, as we saw in Texas and as we've seen around the country with, you know, in California and elsewhere, uh, we're seeing uh, greater instances of extreme weather. And those uh, not only is it occurring more frequently, but it's occurring more ferociously. And um, uh, we're going to be seeing whether it be forest fires, whether it be hurricanes, whether it be cold snaps, whatever it is, it's going to impact the reliability of our grid. And so I think it's incumbent upon the commission to consider those, those issues. And one of the things we're gonna be doing is, is having a technical conference to consider, uh, obviously uh, the impact of climate change and extreme weather on grid resiliency and reliability and what, what should, what can and what we should do about it. And I think it's something we have, we have responsibility for the, bulk, the reliability of the bulk power system. And I think that's what this process or proceeding is all about. All right, terrific. Uh, on the last podcast, we uh, we had Pat Wood, former chairman on uh, FERC and the Texas Public Utility Commission. We talked a lot about the Texas situation and just what happened there. Um, and we talked a little bit about FERC's role in it. And um, the answer was kind of FERC doesn't have much of a role just because of the way the regulatory structure is set up. Any thoughts on Texas? I mean, what uh, lessons learned and perhaps any any role for FERC moving forward, if any? So we, uh, we are currently engaged in a uh, inquiry, a joint inquiry with NERC in terms of examining what happened, not only in Texas, but other parts of the, of the middle part of the country as well that, that had um, uh, issues with regard to rolling blackouts associated with the cold snap. And so I don't want to prematurely um, uh, make, make some determinations until we actually see the results of that report. What's so frustrating is that back in 2011, there was a similar uh, cold snap, uh, and not although the outages weren't nearly as bad as they were in, in Texas this time around, but there were still some uh, uh, rolling blackouts and so on. And FERC and NERC did a joint inquiry. Uh, that report was very thorough. One of those, um, one of the recommendations that came out of the report was that uh, there should have been um, uh, should be investments made in winterizing uh, generation facilities and so on. And then somehow in the process after that report came out. Instead of having a requirement that, you, that generators make those investments, it came down to some sort of voluntary guidelines. And especially in Texas, we had such a competitive market. Um, I, I, it's hard to see generators choosing to make those investments if their competitors aren't making those investments. And so therefore, nothing really happened. And again, we don't know exactly what happened, but we certainly, uh, uh, it appears that at least part of the um, concern may have been the lack of winterization of the generating facilities. And so if that is true, if that's the case, so that actually was a major cause of, of, of the outages and what, what occurred in Texas, you know, shame on everybody uh, who was involved in that process. We need to take action if action is necessary. So we're going to see what the results are of this inquiry. I've said many times before, we're not going to put together a report just to have it sit on the shelf. If the report says action is needed, we're going to work with NERC and make sure that um, 
uh, we uh, take a look at the, the mandatory reliability standards process and figure out what need what actions need to be taken and then require that those actions be taken. All right, you started off your chairmanship by announcing the creation of a new senior level position to focus on environmental justice, an important but complicated environmental or perhaps social justice issue is addressing the shift in who pays for the electricity grid when those who can afford to unplug by investing in their own generation do so and avoid grid maintenance charges, which then gets shifted to those who can't afford the same luxuries and continue to purchase their power from the grid. Do you have any ideas for addressing these issues? That particular issue strikes me as more of an issue with regard to the retail uh, distribution level uh, service. And so I, I, I suspect that is and I know for a fact, those are issues that the uh, state regulators struggle with on a daily basis. Um, FERC doesn't have much of a role with regard to figuring out how best to allocate the costs associated with those who uh, leave the system or partially leave the system and those who don't. Again, that's mostly at the distribution level. I would say with regard to this new position, it's important for us, I think, to take a look, take a step back and look at all of our decisions and say, are we actually considering environmental justice impacts, whether that be the siting of uh, of hydroelectric facilities or, or natural gas pipelines, whether it be the major decisions we make with regard to uh, uh, cost allocations for transmission facilities or, um, or even issues related to the MOPR. And we need to take a step back and say, what, what's the impact of those decisions on uh, environmental justice communities? Uh, and uh, we haven't really done so in the past. I think it's incumbent upon everybody to at least get, give, give those communities um, an ability to have their voices heard. And so I, that's that's my hope for this new position that well, we will be hiring soon. Gotcha. Okay, putting on your hat uh, of, of your former days being a staffer on Capitol Hill, uh, there's a lot of talk about energy on the Hill these days, whether it's in the infrastructure bill, clean energy standard, carbon tax, uh, other other issues. Do you, do you see any significant energy legislation passing this session? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the, I think the most likely scenario is, is the passage of some sort of infrastructure legislation that's been that, that President Biden has uh, laid out over the last couple of weeks. And um, there seems to be some momentum in both the House and the Senate for moving forward with infrastructure legislation. And uh, the president has put um, uh, included a number of proposals related to the transmission grid related to electric vehicles and, and other uh, uh, energy related matters as well in his, in his particular proposal. And why it may not be that all of it makes it through at the end of the day, I'm pretty confident there's going to be a substantial amount in there. And certainly on the electric grid, I think it's the best, um, uh, is the category most likely to um, attract great, great focus in terms of the legislative process, in terms of the infrastructure bill itself. Um, I think it's, 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 if we talk about bridges, uh, we talk about electric transmission lines, to me, they're very similar in the impact they have on uh, folks. And I think there are, there are arguments to be made that we need to reinvest in our electric uh, aging, electric transmission infrastructure, but also to address the fact, as I said earlier, we're moving into a transition to our cleaner energy future. We're gonna need more transmission and we need to figure out a way to get it, uh, to get the investments made, to get the projects built and to do it in a way that's most cost efficient. So I'm pretty excited that uh, President Biden is putting a lot of attention on transmission uh, infrastructure. Okay, last question in this section. Chairman, you mentioned the book you're reading about the Mets finding so many ways to lose. How concerned are you that superstar shortstop Francisco Lindor's 10-year, $341 million contract will be the next chapter? <laughs> well, hopefully it won't be a Bobby Bonilla situation. <laughs> uh, 
I, I'm actually very excited. Uh, Lindor seems—he's only been on the team for obviously a few games, but uh, he obviously seems to have all the tools, and, and, and I think it's going to be a great addition to the Mets. My only concern about the $341 million contract is: does it make it more difficult for them to sign, resign uh, Michael Conforto as whether well, right fielder, who, who is also going to become a free agent after this year? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's been a great player for the Mets. They need to keep him, and I know the new owner has uh, quite a bit of. Uh, uh, as, as, as a lot more resources than the previous owner did, but I don't know if he's going to be willing to make that investment again in Conforto, but I'm very much hoping he does. Well, if nothing else, the National League East should be a great division this year. There's a lot of really high-quality teams there. Four very solid teams, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and they're all they're all playing to their potential, which doesn't always happen in the, in the East. Um, Four solid teams in the Marlins, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say that, but you're right. Yes. You know, but somehow, somehow they always figure it out. When 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 they do, they figure it out. It's uh, that team is shockingly. Yeah, you, you, you can never sleep on the Marlins. That's no. for sure. Because just Amazing. when you expect you can get an easy series against you, they they go ahead and take two or three and sweep you. That's for sure. And then end up in the World Series and win it. And it's, just, <laughs> it's right. amazing. Right. Right? I don't know how they pull it off. Uh, as an Orioles and Pirates fan, I, I, I wish we could figure out their small market magic, but uh, it is what it is. Anyway, all right. Um, okay, it's now time for our favorite, well, Glenn's favorite section of the show, uh, which, in which we offer unsolicited advice to someone whom we think needs it. Chairman, you have two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone anywhere on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Who are you going with this month and what are you saying? So I'm going to address the same subject I addressed the last time uh, we were we were on, which I guess was ten episodes ago. Um, you know, things were looking up as as you started the podcast, uh, noting that you know people are getting vaccinated, people are starting to feel good, you know, maybe able to return to close to normal relatively soon, and we're obviously very excited about that. But we haven't gotten there yet, and I want to encourage people: please wear your masks while you're out. Uh, uh, it's it, it's vitally important. Last time I was on, we were talking about, I think, 100,000 deaths. Now we have over 500,000 deaths. It's just astounding when you think about that figure. And uh, I, I, people are getting vaccinated, which is great. Please, if you, if you have a chance to get vaccinated, please do so. I get actually, I'm, uh, right after this podcast, I'm leaving to get my first shot. And I'm very excited about that. But I think it's very important that everybody take uh, the, uh, the advice that we get from the CDC and elsewhere very seriously, uh, because people's lives literally are at stake. So please, again, please wear your mask when you're out. Please get your vaccinations when when the opportunity arises. And hopefully we can, the next time I'm on this podcast, we can talk about the fact that we've returned to normal. Yeah, and I would just add a PSA to that. That is great advice. And and, then my my fiance and I are both uh, vaccinated and somehow still uh, ended up testing positive for uh, COVID after the vaccination. So even though you get the shots um, and we both have, both shots. Uh, it is still possible. Uh, we are uh, walking testaments to that. So you still need to wear your masks. Uh, you still need to uh, be respectful of others and um, you need to keep up the vigilance until we uh, have gotten through the thick of this. So that is great advice, Chairman. Um, how about you, Glenn? Uh, well, my first small piece of advice is to Chairman Glick, and that is to build a little afternoon nap time in uh, today <laughs> after that shot, because I know I needed one after I had mine last Friday. Um, but my, my other piece of advice this month is to my fellow PJM stakeholders that believe in markets. And as we discussed earlier in the show, we're at a pretty critical juncture for PJM's markets. We're seeing a tremendous evolution of the grid. Um, and we are at the beginning of a debate that really, I think, is going to be 
one of those moments in time in PJM history that we look back upon and say, you know, here's where we took some uh, pretty decisive action in a certain direction. So, I mean, I think back to like 1999 when we, we set up the RTO to begin with. And I think about 2005 when RPM got its start in PJM5. And then in 2014, we had the polar vortex that led to the creation of capacity performance rules. We're at one of those moments right now. Um, and the debate is not new, but the re resolution of that debate will define how PJM's markets will look in 2025, 2030, and beyond. And PJM has always stood out as one of those markets where um, we really stood a chance of having competition work and where competition could flourish, reliability could be maintained and environmental progress could you know, outpace the nation really uh, in a competitive structure. And the PJM region has enjoyed these benefits for two decades and we very much wanna see those benefits continue. But there are some ideas on the table that could severely unwind these benefits and send PJM down paths that we've seen in other areas of the country where prices have gone up or reliability has comp been compromised. And environmental progress has really only been made through regulatory fiat, not by competitive market signals. And at least from my perspective, I really don't wanna go down that road. Uh, we've done a lot of hard work to get where we are and there's ample evidence to suggest that um, you know, some of those benefits could go away. Um, the good news is you have a commission that wants to hear from you. And Chairman Glick has said time and time again, his ears are open. He's listening. He wants to, to hear from you. He wants to read what you have to say. Uh, but you got to let your voices be known. Let FERC know that you care about these competitive markets and that you don't want to see hasty action to unwind them. Speak up. Don't let this moment pass you by. That's my advice to PJM stakeholders this month. And for my two minutes, I, I wish this was just for one person, but unfortunately, I know it's not. I just want to address people who say try and when they mean try to. Just think about it. If you're trying and doing something, it means you did it. It's, it's redundant. You, you, you're, you're trying this and then you've done it. Now, if you just want to commit to trying to do something, that's a completely different thing. That's You're just trying to do the thing. That's try to versus try and Think before you type and write these things as a person who sits around and writes all day long and is a grammarian, uh, and at least in my own mind, clarity and precision matter. So please, it just, I see it all the time. I just saw it about 45 minutes ago and I switched up everything I was going to write about today because I, I just, I had to talk about that. Anyway. All right. Well, I'll try to be better, Rory. I appreciate that, Glenn. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, just think about it. Just try to think about it. Yeah. Um, all right. All right. There's a bunch we didn't get to today, but our hour is almost definitely up. We were very efficient, but it is time to say goodbye. Chairman, it has once again been a pleasure. Any final thoughts from you? I want to thank you for inviting me again. And again, I look forward to being here for uh, podcast number 30. All right. Let's Walmart. book it right now. Let's get it on the calendar. His schedule fills say. up fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already looking forward to that episode. So uh, we'll start measuring you for the smoking jacket very soon. How about how about you, Glenn? Uh, no, thank you, Chairman Glick. Really, really appreciate your time as always and insights and, and uh, look forward to staying in touch. We got a lot to talk about. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And until next time, as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit 
www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.